Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard. I'm Director of ECFR. And this week, as promised, we are going to talk about Emmanuel Macron and the remarks that he made on his way back from the aeroplane on his trip to Beijing. Macron has been called France's think tanker in chief for his tendency to analyze issues with great nuance, but without necessarily delivering results. And instead, he often finds himself doing damage control, having to backtrack on controversial comments that have taken on a life of their own. And this latest interview is no exception to that rule. It follows hot on the tracks of his 2019 Economist interview in which he argued that NATO was was brain dead. And we've had an incredible amount of Sturm und Drang about this debate with people suggesting that he was dividing Europe, that he was undermining deterrence towards Taiwan, that he was endangering the future of, of the transatlantic alliance through this interview. And last week, we, we started touching on that, talking about the, the danger of Europe's vassalization in some detail with Jana Pulierin and Jeremy Shapiro. But today, with the benefit of a bit of hindsight, I have an all-star cast, both to help us understand what Macron was actually saying, why people got so upset about it, and whether this is helpful or hurtful to Macron's own stated objectives in advancing these points. First up, we have Celia Belin, who is the head of ECFR's Paris office, an expert in French and US foreign policy who has recently joined us from the Brookings Institution, where she spent a lot of time explaining France to Americans, but also explaining America to, to Europeans. And back to the podcast also, we have Marie Dumoulin, who is the head of ECFR's Wider Europe program. Both are sitting in our office in Paris and ready to explain their president to the world. Hello. Hello. Hi, Mark. Nice to be here. Okay, so why don't we start with the, the basics? There's been a lot of debate about it. I think many people have both read or heard about uh, the interview. Some people look at the differences between the original story in Politico from what Macron actually said in the, the French interviews, which got published in the French newspapers. Maybe we could just start with with what he actually said and what the the kind of key debates are about. Celia, I know you've been doing a lot of um, interviews on this in different places, having to explain it to, to different sorts of audiences. Why don't you just start by briefly zoning in on the kind of key issues which you think we need to discuss today? Well, thank you, Mark. And uh, yes, I'd be pleased to look, take a look back at what happened um, last week when uh, Emmanuel Macron got into this storm of controversy for the remarks he made in the plane going back from uh, China back to France, um, due to a, a certain number of sentences that were considered uh, provocative, mostly because he sort of explained, talking about uh, Taiwan, that uh, Europe should not uh, let itself be uh, taken into this uh, a crisis that was not one of its own and that uh, we should not be subject, I'm forgetting the exact word, um, by the American rhythm and the uh, Chinese overreaction over Taiwan. So therefore, uh, sort of implying potentially that the U.S. had set the tempo on the crisis around Taiwan. 
He has also reaffirmed, as he often does, uh, you know, the need for European strategic autonomy, but the sort of the undertone of uh, the interview, which seemed to, to blame the Americans for uh, the rising tensions around Taiwan, really struck a chord uh, in Europe, a uh, negative chord. And you've heard many negative reactions, some of them in the US, but many more in Europe, including in France in expert uh, circles and foreign policy circles for the risk that these words uh, potentially bring to European and American deterrence on uh, Taiwan, uh, that potentially it was seen as a sort of pre-authorization for China to do whatever it wants. It has been interpreted in, in many over-the-top ways, uh, way beyond what Macron, I think, intended to say. But at the minimum, uh, the minimal criticism was that it, it basically said, you know, it basically laid out a criticism of the U.S. and the U.S.'s approach to China and the U.S.'s approach to Taiwan. And this, at the moment... You know, after the one-year mark of the Ukraine war, uh, after a year of transatlantic solidarity and unity, this was perceived as, you know, a cheap shot uh, on part of the uh, French president and so typically French that in many ways it could not be a, a European position. So I think we'll go back on, on many of these elements, but by and large, that was the case. I must underline that it was not the only controversy. I believe that quite a few experts were a little bit taken aback by the rest of the visit. Emmanuel Macron went to China along with uh, um, uh, Ursula von der Leyen, and uh, she seemed to appear to have defended a stronger uh, European line, and he was uh, not on the same page with that. Uh, he was accompanied by... 60 CEOs and signing uh, trade deals and was criticized by some China experts back in Europe as well for potentially what it looked like an opportunistic visit. And uh, so so it's a bit more than just the words that have been said uh, on the plane back, but they sort of um, came to exemplify uh, the, the sort of ambiguity of French foreign policy towards uh, European allies and towards the US as well. So obviously, so I'd like to, to, to disaggregate some of those different things that, that you mentioned. Um, but before we do that, maybe we could talk a little bit about why Macron is such a polarizing figure. Marie, before you came to ECFR, you worked for a long time in the French government and you found that you were having to explain things that your president said on different issues, usually on Russia, which is the main topic which he has been in the center of controversies for over the last few years. Why do people get so angry about Macron pronouncements compared to what other people are saying? I mean, you know, why is he expected to be a kind of unifying figure when a Polish president or prime minister feels quite happy to say things that almost every other member state disagrees with without facing this kind of level of hysteria? I think there are several elements which we should distinguish. There is the French, the France element and there is the Macron element. Um, when it comes to France, I think there is a presumption that when France is discussing European strategic autonomy, it means pushing the US out of uh, European security, um, which probably goes back to at least 20 years um, and the 2003 Iraq discussions 
um, and the way the French authorities dealt with Eastern European um, countries in this debate. Uh, and I, I guess we probably still are paying um, some... A price for Chirac's statement that they should that they missed an opportunity to be quiet, to exactly. be silent. So um, there is probably this perception of France being not happy with the US role in European security, which is partly true, but only partly, and is not very relevant in the context of Ukraine. Um, but I will probably come back to that. Um, then there is also this aspiration of France to be a great power and a leader in Europe, which is probably less and less accepted among other EU member states. But it's true that a French president cannot speak as if he was not the leader of a great power. Um, and, and that's something Macron does, um, and that keeps irritating other EU member states. And then there is a specific Macron dimension. Um, and I think in this controversy about Taiwan and China, we find elements that we had uh, in previous discussions um, after statements about Russia. You were you mentioned that he is um, sometimes referred to as the think tanker in chief because he tends to have very complex analyses um, and very complex phrases that do not always come down very well in the media, um, and very often you have um, his particular wording. Uh, raising controversies about the way he framed things and not about the substance of what he was saying. Um, and many people agree that he is asking relevant questions, uh, but very often he just spoils the discussion about the answer to that question by the way he framed the, the question itself. Um, then there is an issue with method um, and his tendency to assume that um, others share his analysis uh, without having consulted them uh, in the first place. And often he is using media statements as a way to launch an intra-European discussion, which probably should take place before he does the statements um, so that there is more consensus inside the EU about what he is going to say than when he says things first um, trying to launch the discussion by saying it publicly. And the third element is um, is a question of consistency, but I, I guess that's something more structural and it's not only, it doesn't have to do with Macron only. Um, there is a growing gap between that kind of statements and the way Fra France acts in its foreign policy. One French scholar has described it as, well, has described France as a reluctant Atlanticist, meaning France is more and more acting very, well, in the framework of the transatlantic relationship as a reliable ally of the US and of other NATO member states. But it's also at the same time continuing to have this anti-American or sovereignist or, I mean, you can describe it the way you want, but it has a rhetoric that is not consistent with the way it acts um, in its foreign policy. Okay. 
So that I think you've both done a great job of both explaining why people are angry and also, you know, the the kind of long tail of this crisis and the baggage that Macron personally, but also France brings to it. It does still seem like the reactions are quite out of scale with the uh, the controversy of what you actually said. I mean, there is obviously a question of of timing and whether it that it was you know particularly great doing this on the, but. Most of what he said seems sort of phenomenally uncontroversial to me. The idea that Europe is in danger of getting dragged into a conflict between the US and China that didn't make itself. You know, that's where most governments are terrified of. The British government, which is very Atlanticist, is even more scared of that than Macron sounded on on the airplane. He was speaking just after the insane TikTok hearings in, in the US Congress. And as um, you know, Kevin McCarthy was meeting up with um, with the, the leader of Taiwan, um, where lots of Americans are now talking about recognizing Taiwan as part of the thing. That seems um, sort of relatively um, sort of uh, widely shared fear that that the that Europe could end up being caught in a in a kind of crisis which is not of its own making. And this whole question of European strategic autonomy, you know, people at the same time are talking about Trump being the next Republican candidate if he doesn't end up in prison before then. And, you know, we've just been through a period where we've heard lots of Republicans saying that the US needs to be less bogged down in Ukraine than it has been and that the, the main concern should be about preparing for a war over Taiwan. So that also seems like a, a kind of non-controversial claim that Europe needs to get its act together and and be more able to, to defend Ukraine. And these are also not new things for French people to say. I mean, every single French president in my lifetime and probably in my children's lifetimes will be kind of believing those things. So was it simply the fact that he was saying this on the, on the plane that made people so kind of upset about it? It does, just doesn't seem to explain the the kind of power of the of the reaction and that is maybe something which is about macron because he seems to equally say lots of bland relatively uncontroversial things in french politics and manages to get a degree of hatred which normally is preserved for people who are at the extremes of politics rather than people who are trying to be bang in the center of the political spectrum you can understand why um le pen for example would be hated by large numbers of people in french society or the communist party at, at the same time but to have that amount of hatred for someone who's literally trying to be in the geographical center of french politics it's quite it's quite a feat i think if if i if i may i i disagree quite strongly with you on this one mark and so i want to push back a little bit on you seem to be implying that what he said was not such a big deal everybody you know again overreaction from um everybody else and a specific you know macron bashing that maybe yes it's useful also yeah let's let's face it french bashing always good sport in europe so i i understand the degree of this that is true to some degrees but you have in this specific case a, a choice of word that is very intentional and that is uh, very clear and that has a very clear undertone that is mostly let's face it um uh, targeting the U.S. basically and the, and questioning the fact that uh, Europe should should or should not be uh, um, you know aligning with the with uh, Europe. But this is the way it's explained. It's not just explained in this broad ways. You know, like should Europe has uh, its own voice? It, it, Macron uses words such as uh, we risk that Europeans become vassals 
or that uh, there's a, we should not be involved in a block versus block logic, meaning that you know already it's a block uh, on on one side, and that uh, Europeans should be uh, different, and and these crises are not ours. All of these uh, little words really provide um, a perspective that is not in tune with the year we have gone through, but not necessarily in tune with the past five years either. It's as if there's a sort of um, integration that we are already in a world that where the U.S. is led by a Donald Trump, an anti-European Donald Trump that would go towards a logic of total confrontation with China that has uh, built some blocks and that is asking Europeans to align or they'll be whipped, you know? Uh, when th- those, this is sort of the, 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 the undertone and the implication when in fact you do, you know, it's not very popular to be a little bit Atlanticist in France, I understand that, but everybody has seen a year where um, at least with this administration, you could discuss, you could shape policy together there's an opportunity, even if the, the Americans are clearly hawkish on Taiwan, on China, it's the opportunity to, to discuss, it's the opportunity to shape U.S. foreign policy. And there is no uh, reason to say in advance, you know, let's just give up and consider that we can either be working with them and be vassals or we'll be completely independent. That's for the, the words that have been chosen. But then more generally, why did people get so angry? You have um, You have the on two, two, le- two different levels. The, the European level um, is the... Fact- yeah, before we, before we go into that, I think it would be, it's worth maybe just going back and forth a bit on, on your first point, though, because the way I read what Macron said was that he's talking about the US, not about the Biden administration. For half of the last five years, you have had an administration that was very anti-European, that was taking aim at European governments, that did basically ask for total alignment and was even questioning whether it wanted to stay in NATO or not. Having lived through that, is it not irresponsible? Well, actually, Macron and, and Donald Trump get, got along pretty well. And it's, uh, you know... But that's the point. That's why I don't quite understand about this. I mean, typically, French people are very anti-American. Macron is one of the less anti-American presidents. That's where, yeah, um, I, I disagree. That's where I disagree. I think the instinct here is fundamentally anti-American. And it's this obsessive, you know, positioning, not anti-American in, you know, in, in a, a xenophobic kind of way, but in a political, conscious political decision to place France um, on, on a different footing and, 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 and to distach. And what's, what's missing here is a form of pragmatic Atlanticism that is needed at a moment when you want to be a committed Europeanist. You need to be also pragmatic. I, I totally agree with you that from a, a, this is where I wanted to kind of move to. I talking about what Marie was saying about the method earlier seems insanely counterproductive what he's done. So if you take as, as read that we don't want to get embroiled in a war which we didn't create, that we want Europe to be sovereign and able to do things, and that you want a united Europe that can act together and build its capacity. I think those are all sensible things which Macron was calling for. Did his interview make that more or less likely? I think that's, you know, obviously there's a very good critique to make, and that's why I like to kind of move towards. But I don't see, A, that France has been particularly anti-American. It's worked under Macron. It's worked with America. It's been part of NATO. It's been part of the sanctions 
sanctions. He's tried dialogue, even with Trump, you know, during the craziest periods of American foreign policy, the attitude was about engagement rather than taking kind of sanctions against it. And certainly with Biden, they've been very good partners to the Americans and have, have tried to kind of work very closely with them. So it doesn't feel like he's the most anti-American president we've had. It's very different from Chirac during the Iraq war, where you know he was literally trying to stop American foreign policy. There's not been anything like that in Macron's policy so far. And as I said, in terms of the substance, you know, the language, I agree, you know, is maybe like deliberately provocative and irritating. But the, the sentiments that he expressed don't feel particularly radical to me. The idea that we don't want to get sucked into. If you just listen to the TikTok hearings, you look at the debates within the Republican Party, you look at the opinion polls, it's quite possible there's a you know non-negligible chance, at least a 50% chance that you'll end up with a president who's quite anti-European, who's very America first, who maybe even Donald Trump, you know, like not preparing for that and not wanting to create a bit of space for some agency out of that, I think would be irresponsible. And I don't think most people privately would would disagree with that. And he was talking about the US. He wasn't talking about the Biden administration. I think every, you know most Euro- European governments would die to keep Biden in power for as long as possible and to keep, you know, if it, if it was about a kind of perpetual Biden administration, then it would be a very different kind of story. But even the Biden administration on China has been unable to, to to stop very controversial things being done, like Nancy Pelosi going to Taiwan in something which doesn't seem to have enhanced this security of Taiwanese people or helped anyone particularly. So, I, you know, that is something which Europeans have got very little agency over. Even Biden couldn't stop her going. Certainly, um, Macron was not able to stop Pelosi going to to, to Washington. Sorry, Marie, you look like you wanted to come in. I, I will just come back to what I was saying earlier. Vassalization is a very good word when you're a leading European think tank to describe the kind of tendency to the transatlantic relationship. It is not when you're the president of a big European country. Um, and here I come to my point about wording. Macron keeps doing that killing a very good discussion by using the wrong word. And here the discussion was about what are the EU's interests vis-à-vis China, vis-à-vis Taiwan, what is the timing that we would like to see in this crisis, Um, how should we collectively react, what are our capacities, etc. And this discussion is not taking place because we are discussing whether Macron is or is not pro-American or anti-American, which is not the the real discussion, because here I agree with you, he has been much more pro-American or at least much more willing to act in a transatlantic relationship than many of the previous French presidents. And, And that was particularly true on Ukraine. The coordination with the US, the coordination within NATO was much, much higher and much more intensive than it ever was in the years before, and in the 20 or, I don't know, I mean, even since 28, when France joined the um, integrated command. Do you disagree with that, Celia? You've been working on transatlantic relations very closely for a long time. No, no, I don't disagree. I've written in the past that we've experienced maybe the top of French-American relations uh, recently. The, 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 I think the better proof of this is that right after the AUKUS decision was taken, 
the uh, the entire uh, you know foreign policy circles on both sides of the Atlantic came to the defense of France, saying that the administration should not have made um, this uh, decision to exclude France from the nuclear deal with the the British or to take over uh, British and Australians because France was such a fantastic ally, etc. But that does not mean that the intent of this of the speech, that's where it infuriated down to diplomats and people who work in, in foreign policy circles or expert circles, is that there's been very, very good work done at a very good pragmatic level, political level, to work both on defense and security issues within NATO, to work on political relationships, to work now on Indo-Pacific. Uh, it's after you know 15 years of working together very strongly on counterterrorism. And then for the sake of winning the intellectual debates, because that's ultimately what the president you know, by putting its vision, which is okay, let's, we can discuss the vision, but seems to be trying to win an intellectual debate, maybe one that's, you know, for the ages, a debate in 25 years, in, in 40 years, we'll say, yes, Emmanuel Macron was right about this. Um, in the end, it does not maximize French interest or European interest, because at the heart of it, it does not play on this very uh, strong pragmatism that we've experienced in transatlantic relations and does not bring along um, many Europeans in this vision. And to be honest, it's a lot of what we, we are seeing also in domestic politics in France. We, you were asking why sometimes the president seems to be the magnet for political hatred. Uh, and it's not just because he lost the legislative election. It's because very often um, he, we get the impression that he wants to be right, but he doesn't mind to be right and isolated. And if he has not taken anyone along with him, he, if he has not convinced the trades union or the people or the European partners, what purpose does it serve to be fundamentally right on the vision? It's not maximizing um, political action. It's, it's not maximizing French interests. And so that's where I think there's... A, there's a limit of just saying, yes, potentially let's discuss whether or not this is a fair assessment of the future. You cannot, as a French president, talk about European strategic autonomy without be making sure you're not just trying about talking about France views and, and you just slap it on the back of your European friends saying, well, that's what we should be doing. You need to have them fully convinced as well, some form of collective doesn't have to be 27, but some form of collective sharing of these concepts. So that's that's where um, really it, it does matter. I think, if I may, um, I think it's not only about winning the intellectual debate. It also has to do with a, a conception of diplomacy, um, which I would agree with Macron is an art of speaking. It is performative. Um, but sometimes I have the feeling that he sees a kind of magic in diplomacy. When I say performative, I mean speaking is acting, but for that you need the credibility. And to have the credibility, you need to have the resources, the capabilities, you need to build coalitions, reach out to partners uh, to make sure that what you are saying is actually grounded in a reality that you are trying to move forward. Um, and that is the day-to-day -day business of diplomats. And sometimes I have the feeling that... Um, Macron is just forgetting this part of diplomacy and considering only the sort of 
personal leadership dimension and the contact between leaders, which he is doing, and he was doing that with with um, with Trump, he was doing that with Putin, he is doing that with Xi, engaging and hoping to move things through this personal relationship, which is part of the diplomatic world. But it's not working unless you have this whole infrastructure of day-to-day diplomatic relationships, reaching out to other countries, building coalitions, etc. So maybe we can end by kind of thinking about where all of this leaves the sort of basic big idea that he was trying to promote of European strategic autonomy. Um, We've obviously seen the media reaction that we talked about. There's also been a political reaction. We saw the Polish Prime Minister Morawiecki in Washington uh, adding his comments to the to the discussion. And Alina Baerbock, the um, German uh, Foreign Minister, was doing some damage control in Beijing as well after the after the visit. Um, what do the two of you think is going to happen to to strategic autonomy um, over the next period of time? Can we declare it dead until Trump gets reelected, or um, is there going to be some strategy which Macron and others pick up in the to to rescue it from the kind of wreckage of uh, of the last week's um, news stories? Well, it would be just great if uh, European strategic autonomy could be pushed by others for a little while. And I think there's uh, several concepts that the French president has enjoyed uh, talking about. One of them is European sovereignty. On that front, I think he has uh, a lot of support, a lot of um, uh, other partners that are willing and, and able and uh, to do that. And this visit was followed right after by a state visit to the Netherlands, where he talked a lot about European sovereignty, including on industrial affairs, tech, and other elements. This this has become increasingly um, uncontroversial. The, I, I don't know how Mary feels about this. Uh, maybe I'm mistaken, but uh, European strategic autonomy as a sentence has become quite loaded. There's uh, just one more load added with this interview. Just maybe give it a rest and talk about the exact same ideas but without this this loadedness of vocabulary that comes with it, and that antagonizes for no particular good reason. So um, just, uh, be, but because in itself, as a concept or as a as a reality, it will not change. The reality of uh, conflict on the uh, European territory is uh, a reality. The the fact of the world becoming increasingly multipolar is a reality. So Europe needed to be stronger to be a voice etc this will go on whether macron talks about it or not yeah i completely agree that strategic autonomy or call it strategic sovereignty european sovereignty or whatever you call it it will move forward because reality is compelling the europeans to move forward on it so the intellectual debate may be stuck with wordings but the reality will go on Okay, well, I think we've come to the end of our time here. We were maybe earlier than uh, Macron in abandoning strategic autonomy, or in fact, never adopting it as a as a term. But we did a lot of work on European sovereignty and strategic sovereignty, and we'll no doubt continue to do that as we uh, move forward. But um, we have one thing left to do in this podcast, and that's our bookshelf segment. Celia, what's on your bookshelf at the moment? So um, I'll... I'll talk about the book that um, I just read because of um, which came out already two years ago, but many of my friends 
mentioned it over the years and it has nothing to do with foreign policy, but I just happened to be thinking now for months and months, I need to read that book because um, it seems to have touched so many people's lives. It's called, uh, it's a French book. It's called uh, Living with Our Dead, Vivre avec nos morts by a, a French female rabbi called Delphine Orviller who has written this book in the context of COVID and she reflects on death and death as a part of society and how we, as a rabbi, she's on the bedside of people who are dying. She's accompanying people and, and officiating funerals. And uh, she puts it in the context of, you know, very public death, such as, you know, the terrorist who killed uh, the Charlie Hebdo uh, uh, authors and and how she was uh, um, also a part of the, of these funerals, but also very private death and how we all deal um, with death, how human life deals with death. And I think now from you know I'm almost at the end of it. I really see why it touched so many people because it's the ultimate intimate topic, fundamentally. And that we hardly ever reflect on it, apart from being in the news. You know, death is all around. So I really recommend it. And it's not as heavy as it sounds. Wow, that sounds amazing. And what about you, Marie? Um, my bookshelf, well, uh, my bookshelf is a novel by a Georgian writer writing in German, Nino Haritashvili. Um, the book is called The Cat and the General. Um, and it's... It's several stories in one. Um, it's a story of a Georgian actress living in Germany, in Berlin, who is hired by a Russian oligarch whose surname is, um, nickname is the general. And this general, well, she's hired to play the role of a young Chechen girl who was raped and killed during the war in Chechnya. And the general was actually involved in the rape uh, and the killing. Um, and so it's the two stories of this um, young Georgian woman living in Germany with all, um, all her memories from the Georgian civil war in her childhood and the story of the young Chechen girl, um, but also the story of this um, Russian young man becoming a soldier, being involved in the, the war in Chechnya, etc., and basically, it's about what war does to people, to their everyday life and to growing as adults, etc. So it's a very rich novel, not a very uplifting one, but still very interesting. So light reading being uh, shared in the Paris office of ECFR at the moment. Thank you very much to, to both of you for a fascinating discussion. If you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, please do subscribe to it on whatever platform you've used to download it from. And while you're there, it would be wonderful if you could give us a positive review and a five-star rating. Um, we'll put links up to all the uplifting publications that we've mentioned on our website at ecfr.eu. But for now, from Celia, Marie, and myself, Mark Leonard, it's goodbye. Researcher for this podcast is Anand Sundar, and the editor of this episode is Mireya Farrow-Sarats. Mm-hmm.